0: This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME.
1: Please welcome our guests for this afternoon, Donald Betts Jr. and Michael Ondace. As they are making their way to their chairs, I'm just gonna do a brief introduction. Born in Wichita, Kansas, Donald Betts Jr's political career began in his early 20s when he was elected president of the Multicultural Student Association, becoming the first African-American student body president in the university's history. As a member of the Democratic Party, he was elected to the Kansas State House of Representatives at the age of 24, where he led grassroots campaigns to better serve and address the needs of his community. In 2004, he was sworn in as a Kansas state senator, the youngest senator serving in the history of Kansas. Michael Ondache is national head of arts and professor of American history at Australian Catholic University. He is the author of Black Conservative Intellectuals in Modern America and in 2012 was awarded the Max Crawford Medal, Australia's most prestigious award for achievement and promise in the humanities. Recently, Michael was selected by the US Embassy in Australia for the International Visitor Leadership Program, the premier professional exchange program of the US government. I will now hand over to Michael and Donald to take it from here.
2: Well, uh, thank you very much for that uh, introduction, Natasha. And thank you you again for the invitation to be in conversation this afternoon. Um, I'd like to get things rolling by asking a question of Don. I'm an African-American experience historian. That's Mm -hmm. what what I would awkwardly describe myself as. I study aspects of that experience from afar. Uh, I look in from the outside and uh, I write academic books uh, and academic articles for academic audiences that academics read sometimes (laughs) uh, and that my mum and wife always read. (laughs) Um, But I haven't been on the front line and I haven't had what you might call public impact when it comes to black politics and black life. Now, this isn't the case with you. Mm. Um, You're an African-American man who has lived experience growing up black in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been a state senator and you have been on the front line and you have had impact. Um, My question, I suppose, to you is as an African-American man, what are your personal impressions of the documentary that we've just seen? How does it speak to you?
3: First off, I just want to thank Raul Peck. You know, I know he's not listening, but uh, it took him ten years and many, many, many hours to put something like this together. So remarkable. Uh, but when I look at this documentary, and your in, to answer your question, first off, I'd like to say I'm not your Negro. <laughs> <laughs> But for the most part, uh, this documentary is just, for me, uh, it's very important the way this documentary in particular was put together. Because it allows us to then think about what has happened from our perspective, put ourselves and our minds in it, replace the word America and add Australia at the United Kingdom, at Africa, at every country on Earth. And it gives us something to think about. Are we going to continue to allow history to be the future? Or are we going to change that history and make a better future? We can do it right here in Australia. And I know we have many more questions to, to come, but I'd like to ask you, Michael, from a historical or a, a historian's point of view, an outsider looking in, what has this documentary done for you? What, how did it speak to you?
2: I, I wrote down as we were watching it mm. uh, a, a key statement that James Baldwin made mm. um, The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. Mm -hmm. It is not a pretty story. Um, These words, for me, are the key to understanding the documentary and the key to understanding American history as a whole right up to the present day. Uh, There never was a black problem in America. There never was a Negro problem, as they used to say, in America. There has always been a problem that America has had with black people. I mean, that's, that's one point I would make uh, just to start off. The historical crimes of slavery and segregation and second-class citizenship and more recently mass incarceration have negatively affected the lives of millions of African-American people and left an indelible stain on the nation's soul. And so I take that away from the documentary. I also take away from the documentary James Baldwin's statement towards the end that history is not past, it is present, Mm -hmm. because I think the way that the documentary connected this very difficult and challenging and confronting history to the now was incredibly effective. Mm. History is not past, uh, it is present. Uh, This isn't, again, as I say, a black problem this is an American tragedy and it actually calls for an American response
3: most definitely I uh, as a, a former state senator who's proposed legislation uh, like the racial profiling legislation Senate bill 77 when I was serving through the generations there have been four senators before me in this particular seat that proposed this same legislation and was unable to get it done and I was often told Bets you're not gonna get, be able to get this done. There's no way you're gonna get the legislation passed. We've tried it, we've done it. So I looked around the country and I said okay, who has successfully passed a piece of racial profiling legislation, which included uh, uh, people in religious dress or uh, gender or, or whatever, it was so broad. So I looked to Chicago. Uh, a neighbor from the state of Kansas. We're all in the Midwest. And at the time, there was the state senator, Barack Obama, who had just got a piece of legislation through, uh, uh, equivalent to the, the piece of legislation I was getting through. So I figured, okay, I'll contact the president, who was Emil Jones Jr., and he was President Obama's mentor, or state senator Obama's mentor, and I'll fly up to Chicago. So I flew up to Chicago and I sat down with these two men and talked about best ways to get the legislation passed. So I get back to Kansas and I have my assistant to pull in all of law enforcement. I said, I want heads of all of law enforcement. I want to meet privately in a room so that we can talk about this problem. I don't want the media to know. I want it quietly done. So we get all of the heads of law enforcement, the sheriffs, the chiefs of police, into this room. And we discussed why it's important to get this piece of legislation passed. Not that it was going to do something so significant that it was going to stop racial profiling altogether, but what it would do to the minds of the people who are experiencing the racial profiling. Those that, even some of my friends, I went to a secular a private Christian school, friend of friends, friends university. and I would have my friends come over white, white Americans come over, they' drive one, one gentleman's name was Wayne. He would drive in his Mercedes to, through, through the through the hood. We were renting out my grandmother one of my grandmother's properties in the hood. And he would be profiled. So it wasn't just happening for blacks going into white areas. It was happening for whites going into black areas. So it was a bigger problem. And the police needed to understand the gravity of this problem and how it would best help the community to get through it. Eventually, this bill passed. It was was a monumental bill for the state of Kansas. We're talking about the state of Kansas passing a racial profiling bill but I think we need to have that communication. We need to have that conversation because race in America didn't start in 1965. It started when slaves were brought from their home countries to work for free. It started when we had a common language. I often look at the Africans, the African brothers and sisters, and they speak in a different language, and I often wonder, I wonder what my language would have been. It's It hits that hard, that psychologically tough. I wonder what my language would have been. People ask, no, what country are you from? I'm from America. No, what country are your people from? I don't know because that was, a, that was a systematic way of making a slave. You take their language away from them. You take their identity away from them and see what has happened. Look what is happening in America. African Americans don't know their true identity. Psychologically, we've been crushed, so now we're crawling out of the grave. And still, psychologically, we see Black men murdered by the hand of authority. That fear still sits in our homes. Imagine that. That's why you Australians can really do something significant. You can do something to tell the world that we're going to step up. We've got to do something about our black problem. Our leaders have to step up and say, should they be recognized in the Constitution?
2: Can can I ask you on that that theme of psychology? Mm. Uh, Steve Biko once uh, rather famously said that the greatest weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. Mm. And I'm wondering what kind of psychological impact you think the civil rights movement in the 60s and the black movement more broadly had on African Americans, and then what kind of political impact? As in, you know, what were the major successes of the movement? Mm. Um, and and you know, we might then get onto some of the continuing problems.
3: Well, you know, voting rights. Uh, uh, I don't know about you know um, integration, because integration allowed African Americans to be able to study the same things that white Americans were studying. Mm. Uh, African Americans were using outdated textbooks, but still, you had to again crawl out of that grave and figure out how do you grab that knowledge, how do you pull it, and that's why you had people like James Baldwin moving out of America altogether and going to London and France and 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 just vacating the country altogether, so that you can you had a chance to bring something. Significant back to your community now. For an African American in the '60s, uh, it's similar to what's happening now. You know, if you're pulled over, if you okay, if you're driving down the road and you're a Black American, right now, and you're pulled over in the night, the feeling you get is like, "Oh Lord, do I have my insurance?" Do I have my registration? Okay. don't move, don't move, don't move, don't move. Should I roll the window down now or should I wait? Imagine that. Imagine that feeling when they then come with that flashlight and they're looking all in your car. License and registration you don't know if you reach for the glove compartment or you ask you don't know am i being set up to be murdered that is a tr- it's that real i promise you ladies and gentlemen it's not something that you see on television and you think um, they must be a criminal why can't they just get over it slavery happened 400 years ago No, slavery is still playing in the minds of generations today. I served on the uh, Ways and Means Committee. I was responsible for the uh, corrections budget, right? So my job was to go into the prisons within the state. Within the state, uh, within that state, I would visit prisons. I went to one prison called El Dorado. And in that prison, there was a grandfather, African-American, his son was in there, and his son, three generations of African American men for crimes that may have been petty as a bag of marijuana. Now they're away from their families. They have a record, so when they get out of prison, it's going to be difficult for them to get a job. The curse continues. But what do they do in prison? Free labor. They're build. They're they're making tag plates. They're building fences around the state. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's laughable. <laughs> it's, it, it's almost you know. We had one tour. It, it happens. It's it's close to me as well. We, the whole entire Ways and Means Committee went to a a prison, and my brother happened to be in this prison at this time. So I asked my. Um, The chairman, I said, Chairman Ambarger, as you're aware, my brother is here. And I asked him, and my brother, he's murdered. He's been murdered. He's gone now. But I went and I walked into this prison, and I asked the chairman if I could sit in and spend this time at this particular facility with my brother. And, oh, my God to sit in there with him and know that I was a senator, and he was a prisoner, and then to get on that bus Mm -hmm. and see all the senators kind of look at me with their head down was similar to watching this film tonight. So I want you guys to take away from this put yourself in it, and how do you, as an individual, make your contribution so that the things that we're dealing with, we can fix as a people. We're human beings. What can you do to make this not happen? And and I'm glad I didn't break down because, you know, uh, my brother was all I had, and and we grew up in the project. So I often say I came from the gutter to the Senate. How that happened, I don't know. I was one of those twenty-five percent statistics that never makes it out, that ends up dead or in prison, and I've never been to jail. And I, I was a senator on my thirtieth birthday. I celebrated February eighth. I was I'm February eighth. He's February fourth. Four
2: days older than him.
3: Yeah. We just we, yeah. just we just figured that out, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> on my on my birthday, I I stood up in the Senate chambers and I wanted to. Just give thanks to God for letting me see thirty, because where you're, where I'm from, many people don't make it to see thirty. So for me to be able to sit, stand up in the Senate chambers as a senator and proclaim thanks for my thirtieth birthday was monumental. It is said in the in the film that none of those gentlemen, Megger Evers. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King or Malcolm X made it to C forty, will be 40 in February.
2: Well, uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um and, and as hearing you speak about your experience in in the now um, brings back James Baldwin's words that history's not past, it's present. I mean, one of the questions I'm often asked is, well, you're you're in Australia. Why are you interested in writing about African American history? And I sort of give two answers to that. I mean, one is personal in that when I turned 15, my, my mother gave me a book. I mean, she was determined that um, cricket wouldn't be the only thing that this Sri Lankan family talked about around the dining table. And, um, and she didn't think my father was a very good role model to that end. And so she gave me a book called Malcolm and Martin and America, written by an African-American theologian named James H Cone, and she, I still have that book. I mean, she wrote in it, um, My Darling Son, um, All Individuals Can Make a Difference. Uh, and that opened up uh, something quite special for me because the book uh, was infinitely preferable to, to a cricket yearbook, which I used to get for Christmas. <laughs> and um, when I got to university, by this stage I was reading widely Uh, across history, but I kept coming back to American history. And it became very clear to me very quickly that the central litmus test for the viability of American democracy is the condition and the experience of black people in that country because nothing so glaringly reveals the contradiction between what America has said it is and what it actually has been. a nation committed rhetorically uh, to liberty and freedom and individualism, that from the beginning, the nation's original sin of slavery, that enslaved a group of people on the basis that they belonged to a particular group. Let's call that group the other. And then after slavery, segregated them, confined them to second-class citizenship, put them in ghettos, and as I said earlier, is now locking them up in record numbers. Now, when I look at the civil rights movement, I notice three or four things straight up. Uh, Equal citizenship, an end to formal segregation, uh, the rise for the first time in American history of a black middle class, uh, lynching not being something as prevalent as it once was. I mean, I see some markers of progress But then I see 30% of African-Americans living in poverty and I think that is the legacy of this history that this documentary is going to the heart of. And the question for the nation really, I'm not particularly optimistic at the moment that it will confront it and deal with it, I have to say, uh, is how do we as a people, how do we as a people firstly acknowledge that these people in front of us are our people, right? They are our creations. Uh, we have an obligation. Uh, how does that happen? I mean, how how do we get to that point where there you can imagine again a kind of great society kind of commitment to lifting out of disadvantage those who are experiencing it because of this history we're talking about?
3: When I when I was a state senator, I had um, I was sworn in um, after winning the special election. I was sworn in, and then I had to run a full campaign. So I won the special election by one vote. I was a state representative. And then my predecessor decided to retire, and he wanted to leave the seat to a, 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 a councilman. But the community called, or the predecessor for the state rep, House of Representatives said Donald Betts. If you don't run for that seat, I'm done with you. Don't call me. Don't don't even pick up the phone. So I decided to run in a special election. I won by one vote. So I served that one year, and when I got there, Senator David Haley, the nephew of Alex Haley, mm-hmm. the only other African American in the Kansas Senate chambers, said, divide and conquer. Because my leader wanted to separate me and put me way on the other side, opposite of Senator Haley. Senator Haley wanted me to sit right next to him him so that he could mentor me. Our districts were similar. He wanted to just keep that that caucus together. And I knew then that we were more powerful in numbers, (laughs) even if it were just two of us. (laughs) But that's what's happening now. We have a president in America who has a reach and a touch to every nation in the world, every uh, westernized nation in the world. He's doing something to the West. It's happening. We don't know what is hap- what's happening exactly, but something is happening, and President this the 45 is touching. We have to remember divide and conquer. If we as a civilization allows ourselves to be divided it's easier to conquer us but if we decide we want to stay together for the betterment of our people of our community then we need to stick together it's simple when you allow a disease to come in and 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 infect a, a, a group uh, say a um, a Flower, if you allow that flower to stay there, that disease flower, it will affect the whole bunch. You have to remove it, and we have to remove that hatred, that division, all of this vitriol and hate speech, and do something to be an example for the future generations to come. Mm.
2: I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I one point I would make in response, and again, it's a pessimistic point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm the counter to your optimism, I think, in that I have never seen such acute political polarisation as I'm seeing now, Mm. Uh, not only in the United States but elsewhere, but certainly in the United States where uh, political opponents don't speak to and with each other but past each other, where politics is no longer a contest between who's right and wrong but who's good and who's evil? And if your opponent is evil, you don't have to listen to him or her. You destroy them. Now,
3: unless that evil uh, that evil opponent makes you look more evil than he or she. Was. Right,
2: right, right, <laughs> right. And so, and so, I think uh, you know. I come back to the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and its its language, which privileged equality. It um, drew upon a rights tradition in the United States. Uh, to, to call for African-American recognition and rights. Um, it spoke in terms of a common humanity uh, and it was ultimately... Um, I mean, it didn't persuade everyone. I mean, you needed legislation, the Civil Rights Act in 64, a Voting Rights Act in 65, to bring the South as much into line as you could. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, the, the movement achieved great things in that regard. I'm trying to imagine a movement today that could draw inspiration from that movement and re-articulate a different kind of vision for the poor in American society, whatever colour they happen to be, but we're talking about African-Americans today, and not only make a convincing case intellectually but win people over who might not be in your camp right now. Because it seems to me that the great strength of the civil rights movement, broadly defined, is that it was able to do that.
3: Yeah, I think uh, in American culture today, the African-American community is its like, what is black community now? What is the black community? There are four divisions. You have one, you have your, uh, your, your immigrants, your African immigrants that are coming into America who are well-educated and are, are attending the Ivy League schools. You have your... Uh, Within that dynamic, you have the mixed uh, black and white children, so they're trying to figure out their identity. Then you have the upper echelon Mm African-Americans, the the, the, the 10 percenters, those who are uh, that make some uh, white Americans want to bow down with the wealth that they that they hold in their hands, like Oprah Winfrey or Jay Z or these multi billionaires who are uh, have all of this wealth. So the African American community is all over the place. Mm-hmm. But what I do notice is the the youth generation, these millennials, uh, they have a. I don't know what it is about them, and it's hard for me to understand them. I don't know if you've had that experience. Yeah, I don't. Und- I, und- I have a <laughs> nephew, and they think different. Yeah. So it's like, they're, It's what is their mission? What What is it that they have a compassion about them? I don't know what it is, but they all have a common goal. Maybe we need to look at what the millennials and what the youth are thinking. So long, we look to the elders and the and the and uh, the leaders of the African American community or this community. But what are our children saying? Mm. You know, uh, sometimes we don't listen to the children, and as a result, they copy what the adults do. Yeah, absolutely. And then you continue mm. and, and you continue that cycle.
2: A lot of young people, though, were were utterly inspired and. You know, nine years ago, I counted myself as one of these young people, but utterly inspired by candidate Obama. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And his presidency, I think it's fair to say whatever one thinks, has, has had mixed reviews, right? fairly on, fairly rightly or wrongly. Yeah. Um, my own impression as a historian was that the election of the nation's first black president was evidence of how far the nation had come in one respect, but his presidency has driven home to me in the strongest possible terms how far the nation still has to go. And I'd like to get a sense from you as someone who was a state senator uh, who's you know, obviously got a great interest and expertise and experience in black politics. Uh, w- what did his presidency mean to you and what do you count among his greatest achievements insofar as the African-American population is concerned and uh, his weaknesses?
3: Well, um, first, uh, he inspired me to run for Congress. So I I ran for Congress during the time he's running for president. Mm -hmm. So I figure, okay, if President Obama or uh, the candidate Obama is running for on the ticket, I'll run on the ticket with him. Win, Mm -hmm. lose or draw... I ran on the same ticket as the first African-American president. Mm-hmm. So for me, he inspired me in general to go for it. without you know, Despite all the odds, and I was on an uphill battle, just go for it. And that's what he did for many African-Americans, Latinos, poor, white Americans. Uh, I'm a, of a generation that it's, you know, it's, it's not about just black mm. anymore, mm. because I've I've gone so far in the American public school system that we're no longer segregated. We are integrated. So I went to school with Asian Americans and Latino Americans and Black Americans and White Americans. So we're a sense of a melting pot is more of an ideology now. It's more of a uh, do you consider me your uh, your countryman? Mm. And as far as the that's why I go back to the youth because it's a youth movement now. It's more than just African American because we don't just uh, segregate in that in those circles. My friends are a mix of friends. We're we're um, we're more connected than ever before. But what President Obama did the day that he got elected, he changed the mindset and the vigor that fight for all people, young people. That when when someone said you cannot do it, and when you were told that you could not do something, he dispelled all of that by breaking the glass ceiling and saying that you can do it. And we should
2: never underrate that or Uh underestimate that. I mean, I'm obviously not American. I'm not Mm African-American. I'm the son of Sri Lankan migrants Mm -hmm. to this country. But Obama inspired me because Mm -hmm. the first thing as a historian that I recognised about him was that he was a child of globalisation. He was connected by his father to Africa, his childhood to Asia, and his middle name, Hussein, to the Middle East. Mm And that prompted me to imagine a different future for not only people in the United States but more broadly because it was a statement about connectedness. And it is sort of fashionable now, um, certainly in academic circles, that in the academic circles that I work in, um, to talk about what Obama failed to do without recognition of some of the things he did do by virtue of being Obama. Now, the other point I would make on this is that um, William Julius Wilson, who is probably the most prolific uh, black uh, academic writing in the United States over the last 30 or 40 years on urban problems, has come out recently and said, when you look at the data, uh, no president has done more to positively alter the socioeconomic position of disadvantaged African-Americans Since Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Now, that's 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Obama again, President Obama, I should say, uh, was a victim in a sense of expectations that he created, um, but he was also a victim of expectations that we created for him.
3: How many of you had your father in your household growing up, just by a show of hands? All right. That's beautiful. Because if you go to America, especially now at any audience, you can mix it up and you may get half of the uh auditorium raising their hand. So for President Obama, African American man, I didn't grow up with a father in my house. I had my grandfather eventually. After 10 years old, my mother was united with her father for the first time in 30 years, and he happened to be a Baptist minister and he had happened to be a great mentor to me. But prior to that, my parents had split, single parent household. But for many African Americans and many young people, young boys in America in general, to see that black man on stage. Becoming president of the United States, he didn't have to pass a bill. He didn't have to pass a law. The fact that he was the president of the United States was enough to tell me that I could do it. His weaknesses, many. But the fact that he was elected and he had hard work and he was dedicated and he knocked on doors and he gave those speeches and he traveled and he did the hard work that was enough to start a whole new story. A whole new story has started. A, a whole new vision has started. Young people are grabbing it like never before. He was that example that many of us, growing up without a father, needed in particular.
2: How do you see his connection to the civil rights movement? I mean, when he was when he was born in 1961, his parents' interracial marriage. From Kansas. From, well, Kansas. from Kansas. That's right. Their interracial marriage was still illegal in 19 American states. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested in how you see Obama, his presidency, um, in light of the issues that were raised in the documentary that we've watched today. What's the connection between the movement? Of the fifties and sixties, uh,
3: and um, I think I think it was just birthed. It uh-huh. was it, he was birthed at a time that now a, a leader was coming uh-huh. because all of this tension and turmoil, people wanted a change. They wanted something different. We need to get past this racial issue, uh-huh. and as a result, you get people who are advocates and 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 civil rights activists who want to change, so they change. Mm. The change comes from within. Like this button someone gave me, it says, racism stops with me. So in that that 60s movement, a lot of racism stopped with an individual person, Mm. and then it just caught on like fire. Mm -hmm. People start teaching their children different. They're teaching them respect and how to to love your neighbor and how to, to build our nation, work together, not not divide the the population, but you know what? I think maybe we can probably get an answer or two from from the audience. Yeah, what maybe. Do you think?
2: I think so. I don't have the answers,
4: so I'm hoping that one of you does.
3: <laughs> There's a gentleman up there.
4: Um, I just thought the um, one of the comments by uh, in the um, documentary about vengeance. I thought that was really interesting, particularly the notion of. Uh, around give me liberty or give me death, but if the African-American actually used that, they were nominated as a criminal. And I thought it's interesting that it's still a dominant aspect of our politics in a global sense because they're using that same framework to interfere or intervene in many places throughout the world, particularly America and Australia. For example, the question about let's not have violence within our society and at the same time we are prepared to intervene in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan and a whole range of places. So it seems to me that same framework is being used in a global sense rather than in, in uh, 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 as well as a national sense.
2: Can I have a first go of response to that? I mean, one, one of the things I find extraordinary, um, and i found this extraordinary for the last 10 years since I've been thinking about it, that in the United States... The, the dominant discourse is very much something along the lines of government cannot fix problems in poor black communities. It can't provide better healthcare. It can't provide better education. Uh, it can't um, deal with welfare in a way that is productive. Government can't do that. Government's seen as the problem, not the solution. And yet the same government can go overseas and create new democracies, can rebuild entire nations. And, and, you know, I sort of make that point sarcastically, but it is to illustrate, I think, a great truth, that government is consistently p- presented as something that not only solves problems but deepens problems in the domestic context. Yeah. And that's part of the problem, dare I say, Um, It it required government in 1964 to pass a civil rights bill. It required government to get involved and support a Voting Rights Act. And these things are incredibly significant and incredibly central to some of the progress that we've seen.
3: Yeah, but, you know, it just takes so much time to implement. We pass laws, but you don't see the effect for maybe five, ten years down the line. Mm-hmm. President Obama was able to do some significant things, but you won't see the, the benefit of those things after until four or five years. Or, But it, it takes states, and it takes governors, and it takes state legislators to actually impl- re-implement those things through the state so that it eventually trickles down. But I think the, the proactive uh, movement of the people, people can actually change it faster than... Than you know, than than governments, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, we can go over and as well as build civilizations, civil other civilizations, but destroy them, is is daunting. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can go over and, for me, I oppose the Iraq War because there was uh, there was a testimony, a, a gentleman, a, a soldier came in, he. he We can't can't do anything on the state level, but he asked me to to implement this resolution to get it through the state so that we can say the state of Kansas is not for the Iraq War. He came in and his legs were amputated and he needed to use the restroom, but the chairman was dragging on, dragging on so that he would have to leave the, the committee room to go use the restroom. Rather than him leave the committee room to use the restroom, he used it on himself, just so that he wouldn't miss his testimony, because this issue was that big and that important to him. So you still have that, that fight, that those concerns that you've, you've brought to our attention. And there are individuals within the community who want to fight against that. But again, divide and conquer. If you stand up and you say that's wrong, you're un-American. You're (laughs) un-Australian. You're (laughs) un-British. Whatever the case may be. But if you have a group of people who are concerned about some of the same issues and you have a quiet conversation, willing to listen to why do you feel that way? You know, I know you're a fellow Australian. I know you're a fellow American. But why do you feel that way? And if we have that candid conversation with each other, imagine the difference we can make together, undivided. Uh,
4: hi, um, I just had a question. Obviously, racial equality is a lot about fairness. Um, and from, from an outsider, it seems three institutions are basically perpetuating um, you know, within America, and that's the lack of um, you know, minimum wage, a fair wage, Obviously the huge incarceration rates and um, obsession with guns. You obviously spoke about um, incarceration rates, but I just thought this thing about obsession with guns and the enemy within, um, and also the lack of a, a minimum wage allowing people to rise up. If you could imagine you know, a situation where those two um, were different in America, do you think these issues regarding race would be any different?
3: Oh yeah, I, I honestly believe You know, there are families, the poorest of the families are earning $10,000 a year. You know, the poor 25% of African Americans are earning uh, $10,000 per year in some of the southern states. If they were earning just $25,000 a year, imagine what they could do. They could put food on the table. They can probably buy a vehicle to get their kids back and forth to school. They can uh, buy school clothes. Just the basics. I would love to just get in a bus or somewhere or multiple buses and take you to some areas in America. It will blow your mind. you would be like, what? Are we in a developing country or what's happening here? Hmm. It will blow your mind. In Kansas, the minimum wage uh, changed uh, maybe for another dollar for those that are um, uh, are, are servers, two sixty five. When I was serving, two dollars and sixty five cent an hour, you can get away with paying your servers, because then they heavily depend on tips. And then when I moved to Australia, they don't accept they don't accept tips. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, because they're they're earning a, a, a livable wage. Mm. Just the thought. Of, I can I can remember how my mother how, how my mother struggled, and I used to ask God why us. Why do we have to go through this? And I did not want to be another statistic. When I had a family, I did not want my children to have to go through that. And there are kids that are going through that right now. Parents are working two jobs. Where are the kids? The the seven year olds taking care of the three year old. It's that real.
2: The, the, I mean, I, I would say, I would actually say that, again, for the third time, um, James Baldwin's words, history is not past, it's present. I mm-hmm. mean, um, we are dealing with a, a legacy of history here mm-hmm. uh, that goes back to slavery. And I would say, you know, black, black bodies have been controlled in the United States from slavery through to segregation, second-class citizenship, ghettoization, and now mass incarceration. And in the, I'm not suggesting for a minute that in the 50s and 60s confronting white supremacy was easy, on the contrary. But the targets were clearer, right? Uh, it was the denial of the vote. It was segregation. Now I think the challenge is how do you tackle institutional racism where it's more subtle, and these things are woven into the fabric of American institutions and American life. Mm. Um, I don't have the answers to that. Um,
3: and, and now the target is not just African Americans. In fact, it's the target is the Latino community as well. That's right. And they are, they are really suffering. And our indigenous, which we have always held up high, the American Indian has always been a pillar of American society. And now they're threatened with the pipeline and their land and it's... What are we doing? Yeah, the
2: black-white paradigm has changed significantly as a result of immigration Mm -hmm. and, yeah, absolutely.
4: (laughs) Um, I grew up with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers and the Black Panthers. I'm from San Francisco. I've been here forever, since 1984. So when Obama was elected by me... (laughs) I thought, yes, we can. This is the beginning. This is going to, everything's going to be wonderful. And now look what's happened. And things haven't changed. I'm heartbroken. Things haven't changed. And you say go one-to-one to each person. And I go back to the States probably once a year. And I have had people get up, smash the table down, and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Trump is gonna be a great president. She's still saying it. She's an educated woman, my age. I'm very old, if you can't see me. And you know, I this is I couldn't watch it the second time. It's completely heartbreaking to me. So that's just all I wanted to say. And thank you. You're a very wise person. As a white
5: Australian, I think we all of those who are in this room who are like myself need to acknowledge that we have an issue in our own country. And that's the way in which <laughs> the way in which we have used the indigenous people. We have we have killed them. I come from Tasmania originally, and I was told there were no indigenous people left in that part of the world, which of course is a lie. So we have to be careful not to look at america and say aren't we good we don't have it. we've never had slaves and that that's not true we also kidnap people from the islands so while i acknowledge the place and the problems in the united states we need to look to our own yes. <clears throat> have another question I just want to say thank you to that speaker because that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm Canadian, born and raised, um, Caribbean parents, um, grew up in Canada and, um, I didn't really face what I considered racism on a whole. I was really protected by it, by my father, I think. Um, but I'm the mother of a, 24-year-old, much older than I look, um, and she is a millennial. So when you talk about millennials and how they think is very differently, is very correct. Um, her stance on Trump getting put, brought into power is that at least we now know and we can now see those people that were hiding under the rock are no longer hiding under the rock. They're out there and we see it. So they see it from a very Different perspective, but my point that I wanted to make is that um, living in Australia and I've been here for 12 years, and I brought her from Canada here. And at the time she was 11 year old. She f- she heard her first racial slurs um, as an 11 year old arriving in Australia, and we can't forget what happens here. So when we talk about how do we change this, um, I think it's in our dialogue and accepting and um, it's in our dialogue and how we speak and what we talk and um you stop using the word tolerance. We tolerate people of different races and nationality. I hear that all the time. How about acceptance of people instead of we tolerate? And um and, and then um I think another point that I wanna make is that um When we um, talk about America and what's happening in America, as much as everything we hear in the news is so backwards and everything else, I really, when I compare America to Australia, I'd live in America, you know, before I'd live, well, I'm here now, but America is easier to live in than Australia is in terms of its racism issue, from my perspective as a black Canadian.
3: Wow. You know, know, and I... uh, I, as a black Canadian, but as a black American, I tell you this: I have not. I've been. I've been waiting for it. I've been waiting for someone to, on the train to say, "You or this." I have not had it. So it's like I'm waiting for somebody to racially vilify me. <laughs> In fact, uh, I could. I could empathize with uh, with James Baldwin when he said. Um, uh, when he when he made a mention that you know you couldn't do nothing to me that they haven't done to me in America maybe because I lived in Kansas and I campaigned in some of those outback areas where they told me honey you might want to get out of here before the street lights come on <laughs> things like that it's like whoa but I haven't had that and I live I'm thinking okay I, we, we, we we move out way out we build a house way out. And I'm waiting for somebody to say something to me, and I, I, and I just haven't had it. Maybe it's, maybe it's covert, mm-hmm. or you know, maybe it's, maybe they're doing it behind my back, or maybe I just don't, I just don't accept it. I don't know how to read it. I don't know. It, it, I don't know.
5: So my experience, as I said, my daughter's first um, racial vilification came um, where she called me. She was walking to school and grown white men in a car drove by her and called her nigger. So I was on the receiving end of receiving that call that my, this has just happened to my daughter, um, which as a mother yeah. was so incredibly hurtful. Um, my daughter also, um, in, as she grew up, was dating an AFL player um, who happened to be black and he was up um, up north and he was in a store and cops pulled a gun on him and asked him, what he was doing there and called him nigger. Asked him what he's doing. There's no difference, really. It's happening. It's there. Where you're from, people are just blatant about it. They're just open. They're not going to hide it from you. But it exists. And I think the only way that we can change it here is opening the dialogue and actually people accepting that it's happening. Um, We've had the AFL player, Heretia Lumumba, that came out and said he was racially vilified. you know, majority of his life is playing football, and there's people still saying it didn't happen. They're telling him that his experience didn't happen, and no one's standing up for him. There's no one out there really standing up for him. So I would like to just say to people, instead of saying, no, it didn't happen, listen and put your sh- feet in their shoes and understand what it would feel like for that experience to happen to yourself or your daughter or any other member of your family. That's, I guess...
2: Can I I just pick up on on the three comments here? I mean, I I think one common thread is that we're living in a fairly dispiriting political age and with the current President of the United States, prejudice and bigotry is hiding in plain sight. It's out in public. And what I'm about to say, I don't mean this in a fanciful, dreamer, dreaming kind of way, but... Coming back to the documentary, uh, the civil rights movement was all about hope in the face of hopelessness. Um, Again, not dreamy, real. And, you know, I, I come back to what Martin Luther King used to say a lot and what Barack Obama himself has said a lot, that history is not a linear thing. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Uh, Now, again, I don't mean that in a fanciful way. People have to do a bit of the bending as well. But it does bend towards justice. And I think one of the key lessons of the civil rights movement is that if people come together, if people organise around principles, if they look out for each other, if they fight for each other, if they value each other, if they see their common humanity... Then things will get better.
0: We have two more questions. Okay. Hi, uh, thank you for the, the conversation that's going on so far. Um, it's kind of related back to what Michael was kind of picking up on in terms of the legacy of Obama. So when Obama was uh, in his um, in his election run, I was a, a young teenager looking at that with with great hope, just getting to know politics and. And thinking that you know there's going to be a huge generational change after these eight nine years that he'll be in power, and then as I've grown up now into a young adult in my twenties, and I look back on his eight years and how the situation has changed and how much difference did he actually make, um, I'm just wondering that was how much has the African American community actually changed under his presidency, and another question is that. How different was he compared to other presidents in terms of his influence? Because if you look at his policies in in most (coughs) areas, and one in particular that really strikes out is, is foreign policy. And as Michael was saying, is that he was one of the first maybe global presidents in that he has a name from the Middle East. His father was from Africa and he grew up in America, whereas mainly most people would argue that his foreign policy wasn't really much different. It, I mean, with one exception, maybe the Iran nu- nuclear agreement, po- possibly.
3: Well, you we have to understand, just the mere fact of President Obama being elected with that name, with that history, he may have calmed the, calmed the waters after Bush. With a Barack Hussein Obama in office, maybe he could have calmed something. We had just had nine eleven. There was there was the bombing of the twin towers. The fact that, and and people were calling him Muslim and all of this stuff, but maybe, in my perspective, maybe maybe the Muslim world thought, okay, maybe we won't strike again. We'll give it some calm because maybe we have one of us in office. I don't know. I don't know if that had an effect. I don't know. I I wouldn't know. But in terms of the African-American community, the college students, the high school graduates... Are, were graduating college graduates were, were coming out wanting to achieve greater and do more because they had an example of a first family a father who loved his children and then even the daughters who were achieving and learning foreign languages and helping their dad in Cuba speak you know in uh, Spanish and Mrs Obama and that love that they had for each other this president, imparted a lot of love in a hurting country. At the time, when President Bush left office, America was hurting financially. We've we've gone into the uh, 1999 financial modernization crisis that broke the bank. You know, things were really terrible. But when Obama came, even if it was just a talk of hope and change, it was something that the American people needed to heal. And I guarantee you, I Felt healed. I felt good about serving again. When you were under this cloud of war and pain, and uh, people were losing work and out of their out of jobs, he, in my opinion, brought relief. It may not have been on a, uh, a legislative scale, but it was relief—the relief that the country needed, or that eight years to kind of just heal and slowly build back you know it, for, that's my opinion others may feel different well i i don't feel different um <laughs> uh but i'm conscious that i think
2: we're uh, being time. we're out of time mm-hmm. um I, I would echo what you have to say um it's been a terrific conversation i'd great. like to thank, thank, thank everyone for coming along thank you, very much.
0: you have been listening to an acme podcast For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the ACME website.